Hello and welcome to another APW Property podcast, which casts a BDI over property in the UK and seeks to entertain, educate and inform our listeners about UK housing from an investment perspective. Today I have with me two members of the APW team, uh, Callum Williamson and Richard Evans. Uh, Hi both. Hey Paul, how's it going? Yeah, good, thank you. And hi Richard. Hi Paul. Uh, We're going to continue our look at UK housing styles. Um, Our idea is that it will help you to look at towns and cities as you drive around the UK streets in your Google cars or or in person and look at the houses on either side of the road. Last week, we got as far as the 20th century, having looked at early medieval buildings um, through to Tudor, Georgian, Regency and Victorian styles and ways of identifying and recognising them. What do you think you learned from our race around the roads last time? Whew. I mean, I learned a lot. I learned a few uh, a few words that I didn't know the meaning of, to be honest with you. I learned a bit more about the, was it Georgian we were saying, the name where the windows, the windows get smaller as they go up? Yes, the Palladian proportions of a Georgian... Uh, That's it. Georgian terrace, yes. Palladian proportions. And um, I think it was quite interesting to see how you know, housing stock that was considered not glamorous at the time, i.e. workers' housing, is now sort of a lot of the stock that people try and buy for good quality investment properties. So certainly learnt a lot, for sure. Yes, if you go all the way back to classical Greece, uh, you'll see a column, a column in uh, in something like the Parthenon. It isn't actually straight cylindrical. It's curved, it's fatter in little bits. And the whole point of that is that when you stand and you stand a a distance away and you look at it, it will seem to be the same proportions all the way up of the same size. But in fact, when you go closer to it, it's not. So have a look at Ionic and Doric columns and you'll see stuff about that. So what do you think you learned, Richard? No, similar to Callum. Um, I knew nothing about housing styles, so... You know, I went from knowing nothing to knowing a lot, and you know, I can drive drive through the streets now and be like, "That's a Georgian house." And before before the podcast, I definitely couldn't do that. Okay, well, uh, have a listen to it if you haven't heard it already. Uh, we just got to the Edwardian period. Um, this covers the beginning of the 20th century and the run up to the First World War. Um, the Edwardian era is an interesting one, a bit overlooked in some ways. It was influenced by the arts and crafts movement, uh, which was founded by William Morris and Blake as well, the, the sort of poet. They were against uh, the industrialization of everything and they went back to a kind of handmade style and they were big fans of the medieval period. So you suddenly see a whole load of medieval influences in the architecture and domestic architecture from the arts and crafts movement and also the sort of handmade idea. So they... In domestic architecture, you suddenly see sort of things like hanging peg tiles and exposed timber frames, um, which you can see uh, on the facades. Timber porches, fretwork balconies are common features. Uh, you also see Dutch gable ends as well. And inside, the houses are less gloomy than the late Victorian ones and had the benefit of electricity, which was a big uh, innovation. They're often smaller than Victorian houses as well. They're not sort of three and four storey. You get two storey houses because they didn't have as many servants and they didn't need as many as much space. Uh, you were brought up in a, an Edwardian house, I remember, Richard. Tell us about that or describe it to us. Yes, Paul. So uh, my family home... The one thing I'll always remember is is looking up at the ceiling and the coving. 
you know, in these modern day houses, you don't get to see that, but you can appreciate that, you know, someone probably would have spent weeks just, you know, designing the ceiling alone. And the ceilings were also really high. In, I'm, I'm not the tallest bloke in the world, but... Hey, don't you know, in, put yourself down. <laughs> You're quite I'm taller tall. than you, aren't I? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, in modern houses, you know, sometimes you have to duck through door frames or, you know, you can put your hand up and, and touch the roof where... You know, in, in my house, that is not possible. I could jump and I still wouldn't touch the roof. Yeah, and I'd say the other thing is is the bay windows at the front of the house. They probably, they've ruined quite a lot of lie-ins for me over the years. They let a lot of light in, but you almost have like a panoramic view when, when you know, you're standing in the middle of them. Okay. Yeah, so, so that kind of coving and cornice, plaster cornice, they, in Georgian periods, when you had panelling in the rooms, uh, quite often that was a, a, a box cornice. It was made of wood. Uh, then in the later period, late Georgian, it started to become plaster cornice and was very, very highly decorated. Uh, and it runs all the way around the room. And you can then date uh, buildings quite often, quite accurately, from the different styles of that plaster cornice that runs around the room. But it's, you know, and also then you go back to Elizabethan houses, you have kind of galleries with with very, very elaborate uh, plaster ceilings. Anyway, uh, so that was the Edwardian period. And then we get, that was the, the sort of height of Britain's wealth to a certain extent. And, and then what happened, Callum? It all went downhill. It went to pants. First World War started, aka the Great War, aka the war to end all wars. Yes, that didn't really work, that war to end all wars, did it? Um, we'll come back to that a bit later. But uh, So how did it work out? Uh, Britain overnight goes from the manufacturing empire of the world to, uh, well, a third-rate country, fourth-rate, second-rate. It depends on how you look at it. But it was no longer the – it was the start of its kind of decline uh, throughout the 20th century. Interestingly, do you know about the rating system, first-rate, second-rate, and so on? No, not a problem. No. Ah, well, you see, it's uh, you haven't – you haven't been studying the Building Act of 1774, have you? It's been next to my bed for yes. a few weeks now, but uh, in preparation for the pod, but I wasn't sure if it would come up, so I haven't read it yet. Well, last week we talked a little bit, in the first episode, we talked a little bit about the um, need for fire prevention after the fire of London and the building rem- remedies that were introduced. Um, and uh, it all culminated to a certain extent in the, I mean, obviously building regulations continued, but in the Building Act of 1774, uh, which was formerly known as the Fire Prevention's Metropolis Act of 1774. It was passed by Parliament to consolidate all the earlier legislation and to regulate the design and constructions of new buildings in London. The provisions of the Act regulated everything in London and elsewhere, uh, because it spread around uh, Great Britain and Ireland. The long title, which I I really quite like, is An Act for the Further and Better Regulation of Buildings and Party Walls and for the More Effectually Preventing Mischiefs by Fire Within the Cities of London and Westminster. Do you like that? Mischiefs by Fire. Uh, So take us through the rating system and what they came up with. Callum, you start us off with the first rate. Okay, a first rate house was valued at over, wait for it, £850 and occupied an area on the ground plan of more than nine squares of building. So 900 square feet or 84 square metres. These houses were typically for the nobility or gentry. The occupants would frequently not own the house but would rent and use it as their townhouse as a temporary alternative to their larger country houses, of course. 
Yes, and uh, uh, doing the research for this, I, I came across Bedford Square uh, was the first square in London that was built entirely of first-rate houses. Uh, so it's worth having a look at that. It was constructed uh, after that period of 1774. One of the houses was used uh, as the base for the Apprentice series in 2010. So a big grand house. But have a look at Bedford Square. Interesting buildings there. So uh, Richard, second rate, what was that? Yeah, so a second rate house was valued at between £300 and £850 and occupied an area on the ground plan of between five and nine squares of building, which is 500 to 900 square feet. These houses were typically for professional men and gentlemen of good fortune or merchants and might face notable streets or the River Thames. Yeah, so we're seeing this kind of um, almost the the legislation of the uh, class system in the UK. Uh, These squares of buildings, 100 square foot. uh, So the first rate was nine. uh, The second rate is five to nine. And that's just the the foot plate, as it were. It's not the actual size of the house, because uh, obviously the houses were over several floors. Uh, Callum, take us through the third rate house. Third rate house, okay, uh, was smaller. Obviously, you can see there's a bit of a pattern here, uh, and valued between 150 and 300 pounds, and occupied an area on the ground plan of between three and a half and nine squares of building. So between 350 and 500 square foot, or 33 to 46 meters. These houses were typically for clerks and faced principal streets. Okay, and Richard, the fourth-rate house? A fourth-rate house was valued at less than £150 and occupied an area on the ground plan of less than three and a half squares of building, which is 350 square feet. These houses were typically for mechanics or artisans and would be found in minor streets. Okay, and uh, the the act goes on and and then also has uh, the fifth, sixth, and seventh rates, uh, which were for other buildings, including warehouses, windmills, water mills, and workshops, and it provided provisions for the maximum floor area for warehouses and so on. But it all helped the speculative construction boom that followed, because in 1821 the population of London had been 1.38 million, and in the next 50 years it grew by a further million. And the resultant need for housing, coming mainly from those lower and middle class families, clerks, shopkeepers and other such tradespeople, uh, was best met through the provision of terraced houses of medium size. So, in fact, the third rate and second rate houses were, um, but the most popular was the third rate size there. So, going back to the styles, um, let's continue our journey as we trudge through this 20th century. Um, What happened after the First World War, Callum? Uh, after the First World War, the government made efforts to create better housing conditions for the poor and created designs for cheaper housing to be built by local authorities. Uh, cavity wall construction became the norm as opposed to the previous solid brick walls. The Addison Housing Act of 1919 used plans from the Tudor Walters Report as the blueprint. Houses designed to mac- maximise interior sunlight were laid out in leafy avenues, crescents and cul-de-sacs. Between the wars, construction continued on land that had been sold off by aristocratic families feeling the economic pinch. In 1930, suburban semi, semis were the most common houses built and the sub, suburban vernacular ran riot, exploiting a variety of decorative elements from the past. Boxy semi-detached houses with curved bay windows, recessed porches and mock timber framing are easily recognisable of this period. 
Yes, uh, it, the suburban vernacular is, uh, you know, in that interwar period is uh, lovely. It's called, you know, Tudor Beethan. Particularly when you look at pubs, pubs even, you know, went further and was a riot of, of uh, architectural styles. Um, slight caveat about the council housing. Most people think that after the First World War was, you know, really the first council housing. And it's true, but there had been a progressive slum clearance kind of program starting in the around about 1860 1870 because obviously some of the housing that was built for workers around factories was pretty poor and it created these these terrible slums there was one in london called the jago uh, it was just north of spitalfields and uh, that was there was a book written about it. it was worse than the kind of dickensian uh slum ideas uh, that he wrote about and uh, that was uncleared, and one of the first modern council houses there, the, the Boundary Estate, uh, is worth a look at. That's the first social housing. But yes, after the First World War, you then see this rise in social housing. And as well as those garden suburb estates, you get local councils all over the country uh, heavily invested in, in you know, improving the, the housing stock and clearing slums. Uh, and they began to build multi-storey blocks of apartments, in 1936, in London, for the first time, uh, flat building exceeded house building. So, up to this period, what have we learned so far? How do we how do we read these streets, Richard? For the most part, cities and towns can be architecturally read as a historic core at the centre, and the different eras of construction radiating outwards in a series of concentric circles. As they grew larger, cities absorbed their surrounding villages which featured their own historic buildings yeah so interestingly in london the gla did a study they used mapping software because of the uh, crossrail they needed to find out what the impact on property was around the tube station so they started doing a mapping software which covered rates and demographics and and house prices and work and all sorts of things and it they sort of did a variation of that for the entirety of London. And they discovered that London actually had 570 or so different flavours of region. And it was because London, as it expanded, had absorbed uh, the villages surrounding it. So, for instance, Highgate was, you know, it's on the hill overlooking London to the north, uh, and it was historically a village. So when you go to Highgate, uh, at the centre of it, you'll find, you know, very old properties, coaching inns, you know, lovely Georgian properties. And you'll think, well, wait a minute, that's not the that's not what they're saying about the concentric circle. But if you go from the centre of London and radiate outwards, you know, you will find those different eras before it gets to the villages that it's absorbed, where you'll then find independent historic buildings. And that's true for a lot of different cities around the country. Also, you get this um, the prevailing wind idea. Tell us uh, what that is, Callum, about the the smells from factories. Well, the you know yeah, the prevailing wind. I mean, I guess if you're you know you're down downwind from a factory that's producing a bad smell, then obviously you're going to get that pretty pretty bad smell. I know from watching Bear Grylls in my youth that he says you've always got to be downwind from the deer because that way it smells blowing onto you. So if you're downwind for something, you get the bad smell. Yes, and that was traditionally the difference between the East End and the West End um, of London, that that uh, the prevailing wind there is from the West, so uh, the East End got all the smells. So as part of this 
as well that was about health health became a big issue and you get the different you know government regulations trying to improve sanitation trying to improve plumbing and so on and you've also then got philanthropic housing for workers such as Bourneville the chocolate manufacturer who created whole estates for the around the factory so then we come to the Second World War, um, and after the Second World War, as well as the acute housing need, uh, many city centres needed rebuilding after extensive bomb damage. There was a need for 750,000 homes, and for some, uh, prefab housing was the solution. Tell us about prefab. It's a, it's a quirk in the UK property housing. Uh, that's right, yeah. The first prefabs were completed June 1945, only weeks after the war had ended. Aeroplane factories were converted to create the sections of the new houses. It took a minimum of uh, 40 man hours to assemble two bedroom house complete with plumbing and heating, which is not much when you think about it. Sometimes prisoners of war who were still being held in the country were used to help in the construction of the concrete slabs on which the sections of bungalow were erected. Uh, the prefabs could be completed very quickly once the sections were delivered to the site. Unlike traditional houses, they had fully fitted kitchens and bathrooms. And that's something actually not in its entirety that is coming back a little bit is the sort of, I know some of the developers we work with in, in Birmingham construct sections of their of their projects off-site, such as the concrete slabs, and then deliver them to the site and slot them in to the relevant sections. So I guess we've taken some elements of, of that, improved on them and still use them now. Yes, a modular construction is, is a very good way of building houses. Uh, interestingly, some of those prefab houses that were supposed to be temporary, uh, some of them are still being lived in uh, some 70 years later. Uh, so we then head towards the 1950s, 60s and 70s, and you've got this this twin thing of, of governments constructing massive numbers of council houses and houses for people, as well as a sort of style desire of wanting to reject the past because the past had only been war and damage. So you get, uh, you know, stylish bits of architecture in the 50s, 60s and 70s, and they're starting to look, you know, quite cool now, pretty good. But the quality is variable because sometimes they use not very good materials. And the local authorities were were building high-rise concrete tower blocks and developments. Uh, shopping centres were a big thing. Uh, and, you know, one-way streets going around the shopping centre that they'd done in the middle. But all of this was part of a kind of regeneration programme because some cities and towns had extensive bomb damage. Some of the more famous elements of that, if you look at the Barbican in London, uh, that was, you know, the city of London took massive bomb damage and fire damage, and the Barbican was a whole new high-rise building, which has now been listed. Uh, but some estates were not so successful and and uh i came across an interesting blog about a manor estate in sheffield which was uh you know notoriously unpopular in the 70s but actually in 1995 after a local school had been destroyed in an arson attack uh, the mp roy hattersley who was a former chair of sheffield's housing committee in the 60s dubbed the manor estate the worst estate in britain uh quite a come down for an estate which had been one of sheffield's showpieces uh, but the truth was more complex, and all of this is described in a blog uh, called Municipal Dreams, uh, which also led to a book, uh, which is called The Rise and Fall of Council Housing by John Boughton, or Bufton, or uh, not sure, Boughton, B-O-U-G-H-T-O-N. Uh, could be Bufton, uh, could be Boughton. Uh, it's a quirk of the English pronunciation. 
or pronunciation. As the social problems increased from economic decline, the era of technology was just beginning. So we're now coming up to the 80s when Thatcher introduced the right to buy council housing, which changed the council housing landscape uh, pretty much permanently. And you had the big bang of banking, uh, which ushered in widespread availability to finance. So we're into this right to buy and buy to let. Also, the regeneration of some of those city centre buildings, the factories were declining and closing. uh, So you had industrial loft conversions as a style. And uh, there was an advert, the height of cool uh, was for the Halifax cash card in the late 80s, which had the soundtrack Easy Like Sunday Morning. And I had a cool dude with a cat who was just strolling out to get some cash so he could feed the cat with his cash card from... So how times have changed. I tried to pay for something with cash earlier and they wouldn't accept it. Exactly. Well, yeah, I don't know. What would the soundtrack for your advert be then? Um, (laughs) I don't know. It would be... I need a dollar by Aloe Black. I think it's the name. Like that. <laughs> like that. You know, they would be singing it to me. I need a dollar, and I would be saying, "I'm trying to give you a dollar, but you won't accept it." So, uh, private developers—they uh, took on the brunt of the house building, um, often working in public-private partnerships. Uh, city centre regeneration became ne- city centre regeneration became necessary as work transformed from manufacturing to services. Uh, mixed-use, mixed-tenure regeneration schemes have blossomed around the country, uh, often with well-maintained public spaces and people moving back into the city centres. And some of those redevelopments take an incredibly long time. The King's Cross redevelopment, again, worth a look at uh, because it's it's uh, spectacularly good. Um, that took you know, 20, 25 years, and it'll still going. It'll, you know, overall, it will have taken 40 years for it to have become a derelict goods yard, train station, factory kind of space that was very popular with raves in the 90s to this kind of modern uh, mixed-use shopping delight that there is there now. Uh, Any schemes and city centre regenerations that you find particularly attractive, Callum? Yeah, well, I think if they're done properly you know they they can be very beneficial to to locations i mean you look at cardiff's was it tiger bay i think it was where all the docky workers used to live and that was now what is sort of cardiff bay and cardiff bay is one of the posh parts of town to live in you know a lot of young professionals a lot of young families the welsh senate is down there so you know that's gone from that those sort of workers housing we talked about rough as you like Although it did produce some gems in Shirley Bassey, uh, so that's that's one that's that's gone well. Uh, you know, you look at Canary Wharf is another sort of large regeneration project, and um, you know what's the Battersea Power Station? That's that whole area there. There's a there's a there's a whole square there called Malaysia Square because so many Malaysians have bought property there. So yeah, if it's done properly, it can really add some value to an area. I think. Yes, and during this period, obviously the 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 tension between kind of speculative, you know, the need for housing, speculative building, and government regulation. Uh, you know, sometimes you get cowboy builders who are building shoddy things, so the government needs to introduce regulation to stop that happening, uh, and that's still going on. So, uh, as you know, when you work with developers, you work with a very trusted set of different developers, don't you, Callum? Yeah, we do. And I think that's the key is you've got to, 
you've got to work with people with good quality track records and people that have shown that they can develop to a specific uh, specification to, and on a specific timeline, you know, and, and develop in time and good quality stuff. You know, we, we've all sort of heard horror stories of developers going bankrupt or bust, and that's usually because they're people without experience and people trying to sort of ride a wave that they have no skill to ride. So, um, yeah, you've got to work with people you know that have a strong track record, and uh, that's what we try and do. Okay. Uh, well, that's it for today. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed our two podcast uh, trawl through the different architectural styles. Um, a friend of mine who he said it's, well, it's the best pre-show in, in, in the world, really. You can just walk around the street, look at the buildings, and you're just learning and enjoying uh, all of the delights that are on display for you. Some famous architects, but some modest buildings. And one thing that he suggests as well is when you walk down the high street, uh, ignore the actual shop front bit and look above it because that's where you'll find the actual history of the building. You'll find the age of it as opposed to the kind of, um, you know, the, the plastic facade signage that someone might have put up to advertise their shop. So uh, anyway, uh, that's it from us. Uh, thanks to Callum. Thanks very much, Paul. Very insightful. Thank you, Richard Evans. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Learned a lot. And uh, thanks to Emma Holton from Brilliant Audio, our producer. Uh, before we go, though, just one quote from Malala, which I quite liked. Uh, to me, a home is where you feel loved, safe and cherished. Uh, so thank you, Malala. My name's Paul Shearer. Have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast series produced for APW by Emma Holton at Brilliant Audio. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe, hit like, share it with your friends. If you didn't, keep stum. You can find more episodes in all your usual podcast places.